All right, and our leader for tonight is Carol. Thanks so much. My name is Carol, I'm a compulsive reader. It's really wonderful to be here. This is so familiar yet so different. This meeting, I don't know most of you, I see a few familiar faces. Uh, this was a regular meeting for me for many years uh, and particularly the fact that it is a century meeting. I am a century person. So I wanna, so I wanna qualify first. I have been in the program and abstinent by the grace of God close to 34 years. If I make it to this January 5th of next year, it will be 34 years. And I say, if I make it, I'm not scared that I won't, but I never want to take it for granted. And sort of how I think about will I make it is one of the old guys in the old timers uh, in the big book. He may have been an old guy too. They said, do you think you'll ever drink again? And he said, what I believe about my eating, I believe that as long as I do what I'm doing now, and as long as I think the way I'm thinking now, I never have to eat compulsively again. So that's the way I would put it. And I most definitely qualify for this particular meeting. I weighed close to 300 pounds when I came in and I was only 28 years old. I don't know my weight exactly because I never, it was back in the day of analog scales. And so I didn't stand on the scale long enough to the numbers to stop moving. It wasn't the day now where it practically shouts your weight at you. You know, you really had to be still for a while. And I thought, okay, that's bad. So I just get right off. So I don't exactly know how much I weigh, but I do weigh now either something like 120 to 140 weight pounds below my top weight. And what abstinence means for me is three meals a day, nothing in between. It's a limit on a friend of mine, a, 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 someone who really helped me said there's substance, time, and quantity. And those kind of ways of looking at it help me. Substance, by the grace of God, I don't eat sugar or other like honey or other sweetener things, as well as flour and high starch foods are like my heroin. They're even worse than sugar. And three meals a day, nothing in between. Occasionally, if I needed to take food with medication or something, there was a small amount in between, but specifically planned times and also some limit on quantity. I don't put everything on a scale, but there's some limit. Maybe I measure it before it goes in the freezer or I have half of something, you know, half of a bag of something now. And then later I have the other part of it, uh, you know, for whatever it is. Um, but I, there has to be some limitation on the amount that I take in. Um, so this meeting, as I said, is really, really crucial to my recovery. Um, and, uh, when I was new and I said, I lived in the city, now I live in the East Bay, but I got abstinent in the city when I came in in 1987. And I remember when the first person told me about the century meeting, um, which was kind of like the nice term, what's century? What do you mean century? You know, over in the East Bay, they called it the hundred pounder meeting. So he said, oh yeah, it's the hundred people who have been, or are or have been 100 pounds or more overweight. And it was kind of good to break my denial. I didn't quite, I wasn't angry with him or anything, but I like thought, oh yeah, I guess I am more than 100 pounds overweight. It's sort of like, oh yeah, exactly. And I also remember the first person I met who told me she had lost over 100 pounds in the uh, first woman. I think the, this guy who told me about the meeting also had, but especially from another woman. And I just kept looking at her. Like, I couldn't believe you. Like, she was so slim and tall. And, you know, it's. I realized about this later. It's not like I've never heard people say they lost 100 pounds. You see advertisements, you see before and after pictures. But this had a whole different feeling. I didn't know the words to it till much later. But basically, there was no ego. There wasn't like, wow, I am so cool. Look, it was coming from service. She saw me suffering. She could see I was suffering. There's physical suffering, as those of us who've been obese know. And she offered me hope. And I just, that was, it was like a light shining. I'll never forget that moment. So to go back a little bit, um, 
I was always overweight, but when I think of myself as a kid, I thought I was hugely obese, but that is not true. When I see pictures, I was probably always somewhat overweight, but I had a very inflated idea of my actual weight. But one thing I do believe is true is I've always been a compulsive overeater, maybe even in utero, <laughs> you know, my mom was one of us and ate the foods I became addicted to. So I know from the beginning of my memory, I had an unhealthy relationship with food, sneaking, hiding, lying, even in a family of compulsive overeaters, sneaking, hiding, and lying. Um, many fake pretend diets, but always never really giving into the fact that I had to eat less. Um, freedom, again, I didn't realize this till later, but freedom, like, okay, you're old enough that your parents leave you at home by yourself, or later I was old enough to leave home and go to college. Freedom was associated with eating. Now I can really eat whatever I want. It's a terrible kind of freedom because it was freedom, is, it's like slavery freedom, but in that's in that's how I was acting. That this was freedom. So it was, there was always that unhealthiness, and um, and it's a progressive disease. Both the weight, my eating, and the inability to stay on any kind of diet got worse and worse over time. You know, so and the diet attempts got crazier, and or my mind about it got crazier. You know, um, one thing that I always remember, which is both funny and sad. I would say I was going on a calorie counting kind of diet. So, you know, the truth is I had barely had an idea how many calories. We, we didn't have the internet to look things up, but I probably wouldn't have looked it up because I didn't want to know. <laughs> and I would take, say I had one of something and say it was X calories. Then I decided to want a second. And suddenly it was X minus something calories. Like it reduced its calories after I ate it. Now, I'm not an idiot, usually. I know that foods don't reduce in caloric amount after you've eaten it. But it just shows the way my disease was much stronger than my mind and would use any kind of insanity to fool me. The most, quote unquote, successful diets, brief successful, was usually something like fasts. Uh, I did. I didn't total like I did modified fast where I had juices or you know diet shakes or whatever. But I think the reason that they work temporarily is that by, in like by happenstance, not by design, I wasn't eating the foods I was addicted to, you know. But those were always temporary because I thought my problem was I was fat. That is a problem. It's a huge problem. But I was fat because I'm a compulsive eater and I ate way too much food. So the problem was with that food, the weight was a symptom of how much I ate. And I didn't really get that. I know, I know this, well, maybe it doesn't sound weird to you guys, but like, I don't think I got it till I got in here. Excuse me. <coughs> there was some connection between the size of my body and the amount of food I ate. You know, like, oh, really? <laughs> never quite, I never really kind of took on as an option that I might need to eat less, especially not on an ongoing basis. And when I came in here at age 28, I weighed about 300 pounds and that's terrible. But the worst thing is I was steadily gaining. That's the important thing. It's not like, wow, I was such a high weight R&I something, some sort of like negative ego, like, wow, was I obese? It's not that. It shows my disease that the disease gets worse, never better. And I was steadily gaining at age 28. This was not going well. You know, and I want to say another thing too that was important to me. I know people see it differently, but for me, the reasons why I'm a compulsive overeater are not important. In fact, to focus on them can be counterproductive. When I was new, I was much more adamant about there's no reason, there's no reason. I don't want to think of the reason. And the reason that I felt that is I saw people, this is just my experience, and some if your experience is different, I respect that. But I saw people focusing always on why they ate, didn't have what I wanted. You know, that it seemed to be a trap. And, you know, I've heard a saying in AA, if you're in a building that's on fire, 
It is not time to figure out how did the fire get started. It's time to get out of, get away, get safe from the fire. You know, now I do believe I should say that there were reasons I'm a compulsive overeater. Strong genetic predisposition, definitely emotional factors. My parents did love me and I was blessed because I know not everyone has that. But in their inadvertent way, they definitely hurt me too, as probably all do. I'm actually not a parent, but I'm sure I would hurt my kids inadvertently. Um, so I had definitely had emotional issues. And a factor I don't hear a lot, but is important, I was modeled very unhealthy eating. <laughs> a good restaurant served in portions. That was, that was it. So all those reasons are true, but it doesn't help me to stop to know that. It, doesn't, it can be counterproductive. I used to feel more demoralized when I would read various like psychological books about why people eat or why they're obese. I would feel so disheartened, like, oh my God, by the time I figured this out, I'd be dead. <laughs> and it was such a relief to know that I don't need to know why to stop. What a gift. It's the best news to me ever that it said how it works, not why it works. Because I have some theories, but I'm still not sure. And it doesn't matter. It's good for me to look at my psychological background in order to live a healthier, better life and to stay centered and to stay with this daily reprieve so that I can stay abstinent. But it doesn't actually help me to stop. And also, even now, things happen. We're all going through this crazy time. We all have our individual stuff. I have, I'm sure you all have. I have real things in my life, the things that I make up. It's like a never-ending things happen. So my abstinence has to have a life of its own. Otherwise, I'm at the mercy of this world, the people in my life, my own changing moods, and my life is on the line with my abstinence. So I can't, it can't be at the mercy of all that. <clears throat> um, and, you know, in terms of the weight, obviously, the, food, the weight is a symptom of my eating, but as the people on this meeting know, the, being severely obese like that is really hard. It's just really physically painful as well as emotionally painful. I had what I thank you. I had what I later learned was called sleep apnea, where you cho practically choking for a breath in the middle of the night. I think I'm only alive and healthy because I was relatively young and came in. I didn't have a lot of time left. That sounds hyperbolic, but it's not in my case. And starting to move into what how what happened was the first thing that planted a seed is I found I saw these signs. I lived in San Francisco that said, are you addicted to food? And at the bottom, it had one of those things where you tear off the phone number. That was an OA sign. I tore off the number, I never called it, but something in it, like light bulb in head, anything I saw about dieting or weight or losing weight, I like hated it. I hated, I hated the person who said it, I hated it. It was, it was such rage in me. This didn't do that. It made me calm down for some reason because I knew it was true. Are you addicted to food? It's why I always related I do abstain from drugs and alcohol as part of my abstinence. And my high, my low bottom is with food. There's various reasons for that. I don't want to alter my state. Alcohol turns to sugar in the bloodstream. But alcohol wasn't what beat me down. It was food. But nevertheless, I would I used to be like drawn to movies about alcoholics or, you know, songs about drug addicts. And I think there was a real reason because inwardly I knew I was one. So when I saw that are you addicted to food, it 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 stopped my world for a moment. Um, what I found out later in a real moment of serendipity, much later, I found out the person who ran around San Francisco hanging up the signs is the person who became my first sponsor. So I guess uh, she was kind of calling to me in that way. But I actually entered the program through AA. I had a cousin who didn't need a OA. She didn't have a food issue, but she had gotten um, 
soberer, clean, I guess, from her particular drug, more or less through white knuckling it and therapist help. And she was kind of crazy. Uh, I mean, I loved her. She's my cousin, but she was, you know, really having a hard time. And then she started to go to AA meetings and she got calm, sane, and kinder. And I saw the change in her, but I wasn't like ready to go to OA, although she told me about it because her friends told them about it. I guess she told them about me, her cousin with this problem, but I was willing to go with her to an AA meeting because it was safe. It was like checking out what she's into. That was in December of 1986 in a pink church in Hollywood, California, where she lived. And I don't know what I thought, maybe because of movies. I thought AA would be a bunch of people moaning and, and like black light and everything saying, oh, I'm an alcoholic. Everybody was so happy. It was so bright. And I was really blown away by it. The thing that really spoke to my heart, oh, well, two things. First of all, my cousin said to me, every time he says alcohol, think food. And that really spoke to me. What really impressed me was I had, I thought of a diet as something akin to awaiting execution, like this long, dark tunnel of deprivation. Here were all these people. They had a sobriety countdown from 30 days to like 40 years. They were all happy, ecstatic practically about not having to drink. And it started to shift something in my brain. Like instead of I am deprived of eating, I get not to have to eat. Okay, it wasn't the first Monday in January yet, so I couldn't start the official diet, which wasn't a diet, but um, I didn't go in for two weeks and it was dark, miserable eating. But I did use the fake energy of the first Monday in January of 1987 to get to a meeting in San Francisco. I don't think it's still there at Van Ness and Sacramento. There was a church there, but anyway, that was my first meeting on a Monday night. And um, this something happened that I knew I was in the right place. Something happened that is the hardest for me to explain in that... Um, I can't say what happened. I know a spiritual experience happened for a few reasons. First of all, you know, it says in how it works. We stood at the turning point. That morning, a voice said to me, oh, go next week. I feel like if I'd listened to that voice, I wouldn't be here. The other reason I know it's a spiritual experience is something just shifted. I didn't even pray for abstinence. Like, I just went home and didn't eat that night. And something shifted in me where I really didn't want to eat anymore. Like I said, that seed had been planted by that AA meeting. But I didn't, the reason I say it's a miracle is I didn't pray for that. Please, God, help me not want to eat. I didn't know you could ask for it. It wouldn't have sounded good if somebody explained it. I didn't think about it. It just took place. But I want to say that it's not just totally random, like something happened. Two things that I've thought about that I could offer if it's of use to anyone. One was the thing they read at that meeting was we make a suggestion, three meals a day, nothing in between, and abstaining from your personal binge foods. And that gave me a structure to start with. I didn't, it got refined later. I, maybe there, there's like, maybe there was sugar in something that I had to take out later, but I know what like the toxic binge foods were that I could abstain from. And the other thing was jumping on the willingness I was given because I feel it's a gift. Like people say, go to a nutritionist, go to a nutritionist if you want to. I mean, I'm not saying no, obviously people do what they need to do, but like not wait till you make, get an appointment <laughs> to start with abstinence because willingness is a gift. Jump on it. If it's willingness to just not eat one thing that you know that I know is a binge food, I feel like just walking out of there and not eating again that night because I'd already had like a quasi-healthy dinner was the biggest gift. It broke, the, it broke that connection of constant toxic eating right there. So yeah, the details came later, but that was really important. So the most important for me in terms of what it's like now is to always remember that complete powerlessness and that I'm addicts with food. 
foods like the sugar and the high starch and the flour kind of foods, one is too many, a thousand ain't enough. And it actually is the softer, easier way to not eat them. I haven't felt deprived. That's what's amazing. Important for me, certainly never to forget it, but particularly when I always knew, is it says in, also in the big book, in the doctor's opinion, when the alcoholic, when the compulsive overeater isn't using, they're restless, irritable, and discontented. What happened for me is when I stopped eating compulsively, I became restless, irritable, and discontented is the nice term, or nuts could be another term. <laughs> Emotional withdrawal was just that first summer, I swear I was certifiable. But I had a wonderful sponsor and other old timers who talked to me endlessly and calmed me down and said, this is normal that you're feeling this way. In other words, the reason I was upset, the reason we're restless, irritable, and discontented, the disease says, oh, you're upset, eat. But I was upset because I wasn't eating. So that's the vicious catch-22 of the disease. But I had great helpers who helped me to see that. You know, it's the natural inclination of an addict not using to feel restless. There is a solution through the steps, but it takes a little while, you know. But in the meantime, I was reassured. I would call up my sponsor and other people and go, and they'd say, yes, dear, you're doing fine. <laughs> and that was immensely, immensely reassuring. You know, it did, did get better you know, emotionally to know that the reason I'm agitated was from not eating, that it would get better through the steps. You know, emotionally, I would say after all these years, I have many, many moments of real joy, which I didn't before, but I definitely don't feel joyful all the time or good all the time, but I never feel totally lost. What kind of describes my feelings is it says in the, in the big book also that we will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. I like to really parse the words of things. We're going to comprehend the word serenity. I'm going to know what the word means, which means I've at least experienced the state. I'm going to know the state of peace. It does not say I'm always going to be serene and peaceful because I'm very far from that. Not at all. I couldn't even tell you which is more of the time, but I just know that I comprehend the word serenity, that I've had that feeling. But the most useful thing that I learned early on and hope to keep remembering, but it's, of course I have to keep, keep it fresh by going to meetings and talking to people, is that I am responsible for my feelings. I am responsible. When I was new, I would tell my sponsor, who was infinitely patient, whatever I was upset about, and she'd always listen and listen. And then she'd say, have you looked at your part? Have you done your 10th step? It took me like a long time to even know what she was talking about. But what I came to understand is I am always responsible for my feelings. That doesn't mean I'm a jerk. That doesn't mean other people aren't sometimes jerks. But it means, like, I have to look at why I'm reacting to something. Did I do something? First of all, maybe I did do something. I can remember telling somebody else, another old-timer, when I was, well, she said, well, she said, well, she said. And she said, yeah, well, that sounds really bad, Carol. But, like, did you say anything? <laughs> oh, well, perhaps I made a remark or two. It's like I left out my part of the conversation. <laughs> but even when it wasn't, like, my, quote, fault or, like, I didn't do it, why am I letting this get to me? Like, if this person is a jerk to me, why do I hang out with them? Or if I can't avoid them because like they're a member of my family or a, or a boss, knowing they're like that and they're always like that, why am I expecting them to be different? Why am I still getting myself so riled up about it? I always have a part. And that's that has been the most, and as that actually, why is that great news? Because it means if I'm responsible for my feelings, I have a chance to feel better. If it depends on me changing the other person, I have extremely low to nil success rate at this, I can tell you now. Um, and spiritually, the most important thing for me is what I do, not what I think, because I have a lots of different opinions on the higher power over these years. And I don't even know if I believe in a being called God. 
but I speak prayers to something called God and it seems to make me feel better. So I can't explain the mystery, but just making that action of prayer and meditation seems to help. So before I close, I wanted to just say a few words about dealing with now, this time we're in. And what I really feel about this time we're in is for me, it's not all that different. Obviously, this is weird and all the Zoom and all that, but it's not all that different. Thank you. So I've got, I'm at 20, so I have a maximum of five left. Okay. I don't think I'll need all of it, but I may talk, talk longer than I think, is that I kind of remember, you know, that saying everything you learn, need to know you learned in kindergarten. Everything I needed to know, I learned in spiritual kindergarten of OA. Just the basics. I go to, when I was new, I went to a meeting every day. Then that got cut down once a week, three times a week was better. I'm going to a meeting every night and I don't regret it. It is great. I'm so blessed because of the Zoom, it's easier. And it's a difficult time. Remembering basics. I couldn't recommend more this pamphlet. It's called Before You Take the First Compulsive Bite, Remember. It's on the OA website. It used to be green. The same pamphlet was green when I was new. It was in my purse and it like was all in tatters because I lived it, lived it so much. It's got all these great hints like, you know, look, be, be grateful you found OA. You know, don't be surprised if you have a desire to eat. It doesn't mean you have to do it. Always remember when you face a situation without, without you know, compulsive eating or restricting, et cetera, you strengthen your connection, you know. And one that I particularly love is don't dwell on any real or imagined pleasure you once got from certain foods. Change the channel. That one's really important to me. I've heard it said in AA, don't remember your last drink, remember your last drunk. You know, we just went through Thanksgiving. When I was first Thanksgiving after, I remember kind of complaining to one of the old timers about, oh, what I'm not going to eat on Thanksgiving and all that. And she said, Carol, don't think about your fantasy of Thanksgiving. Think about what it was actually like. <laughs> That's all she needed to say. It wasn't like delicately nibbling on hors d'oeuvres. It was binging with mom in the kitchen while pretending to be cooking. You know, it was sickening. It was nauseating. And that's what I need to remember, not the real or imagined pleasure from food. And then the other thing I love in this pamphlet, remind yourself when your heart is heavy, your resistance is low, or your mind is troubled and confused, you will find comfort in the fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous. And that has continued to be the case for me all along. And then the last thing I will read, which I'm probably getting near to my time, but I just love this so much. We've re we read it a lot at the end of meetings, just the very, very last part after the, uh, we, this is from the AA Big Book, we will be with you in the fellowship of the spirit. That phrase has been sticking with me lately. I think initially it meant like the guys who founded AA were saying, you know, you might not beat us, but we're with you. Later, it got to mean those guys died decades ago. And I still feel like they're my fellows because they helped create this program that saved my life. But now in Zoom times, it has another meaning. meaning. I haven't been physically with my fellows for almost a year, like all of us since March. And yet I feel so connected in the fellowship of the spirit, in that spiritual connection with all of you in your little glowing and your little Zoom boxes. So I just want to thank you so much uh, for, for listening and helping being part of my community, the familiar faces and the new faces. And uh, thank you so much for listening. <laughs>